The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Tweep Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or affiliate. We choose to go to the moon. of Talking Space, I would like to introduce our panel for this episode, Gene McCulka. Hello there, Gina. Welcome and uh, glad to be here. Sawyer Rosenstein. Hello there, Gina. Looking forward to tonight's episode. It's going to be a great one. Okay, and Mark Ratterman. Hi, Gina. Good to hear your voice. Glad we're here tonight. Thanks, everyone, for joining me tonight. We have an extra special guest, Apollo 9 astronaut, Rusty Schweikert. Rusty Schweikert, perhaps best known for being the lunar module pilot on Apollo 9, was a fighter pilot in the U.S. Air Force and the Air National Guard before joining NASA. He has logged over 4,000 hours of flight time, including 3,500 hours in high-performance jet aircraft. Rusty joined NASA in the third class of pioneering astronauts, named in October 1963. On Apollo 9 in 1969, he logged 241 hours in space. During a 46-minute EVA, Rusty Schweikert tested the portable life support backpack, which was subsequently used on the lunar surface exploration missions. Rusty served as backup commander for the first Skylab mission. He assumed responsibility for the development of hardware and procedures associated with erecting the emergency solar shade and deployment of the jammed solar array wing operations which transformed Skylab from an imminent disaster to a highly successful program. Currently, Rusty is a retired business and government executive and serves today as chairman of the board of the B612 Foundation. The organization is a nonprofit private foundation that champions the development and testing of a spaceflight concept to protect the Earth from future asteroid impacts. Rusty is the founder and past president of the Association of Space Explorers, the International Professional Society of Astronauts and Cosmonauts, which promotes the cooperative exploration and development of space and the use of space technology for human benefit. He is a fellow of the American Astronautical Society and the International Academy of Astronautics, and an associate fellow of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. Welcome, Rusty. How are you tonight, Mr. Schweikert? I'm just fine. How are you doing? We're doing great. We're very excited to have you here with us. We have several questions, and I think Sawyer would like to ask you the first question about the B612 Foundation. All right. Thank you, Gina. So the B612 Foundation, if I remember correctly, that was named for the home planet on which the Little Prince lived on in the story The Little Prince. Now, why did you choose that as the designed for your organization of the foundation, and what exactly is the foundation about? 
Uh, well, Sawyer, first of all, let's let's get it straight. The little prince and his rose did not come from a planet, but he came from an asteroid. And the name of the asteroid was B612. And because our whole foundation, the purpose of it, is to protect the Earth from asteroid impacts, uh, we named the foundation after the little prince's home asteroid. Rusty, can you tell us really right now, what do you think the uh, danger is that faces the planet Earth in terms of an asteroid strike? Well, it's um, it's one of those things where uh, you don't want to lose any sleep over it, and at the same time, you don't want to ignore it. Uh, it's a little bit like insurance for your automobile. You know, you don't worry uh, every night about are you going to have an accident the next day, but you sure want to have auto insurance because sure shooting one day you're going to have an accident, and that's exactly the same with asteroid impacts on the Earth. They've happened millions of times. We're going to get hit again without any question. It's not a matter of if. It's just simply a matter of when. And it'll happen many, many times, or at least the threat of it will happen many times in the future. But if we do our job right now, we have the technology which can prevent impacts in the future. And that's what our whole purpose is, our foundation and other work that I'm doing. And what do you think is the most likely technology that would be successful in sparing the Earth from an asteroid impact? Well, there, there are a number of different techniques uh, which can be used to deflect an asteroid um, when we discover it uh, far enough in advance uh, heading for an impact. And um, there is no one technique which you really want to talk about, what you want to talk about is the use of several different techniques in concert. It's a little bit like, um, uh, let me think, see if I can think of an analogy. Uh, it's a little bit like uh, chopping down a big tree uh, if you need the wood, but by the time you get to fashioning some fine piece of wood um, furniture, you're going to be using... Uh, you know, something the equivalent of a scalpel. You don't use the same axe that you chop the tree down with in order to do the fine work. You use a combination of the axe and the finer tools. And that's exactly the same way with deflecting an asteroid. You have to use a combination of things, uh, some of which are pretty strong, but they're like the axe. They're not very precise. And you have to follow that up with something which is precise so that you get the exact result that you want. Okay. Currently, is any of this technology being tested? Or um, what kind of organizations are, have bought into it, either governments, NASA, or any other private companies that are seeking to build such protections? Uh, none of the techniques that we believe are currently available uh, have actually been tested in terms of deflecting an asteroid. And a good part of the work that we do in B612 Foundation and other organizations I'm part of um, is to, in fact, push NASA and the U.S. government and, for that matter, uh, space agencies around the world to, in fact, demonstrate that these technologies, which exist, uh, can, in fact, and, and will be able to deflect an asteroid when we detect a real threat. Uh, the two technology, well, there are three technologies, basically, uh, which are available. Uh, 
right now without further technological development or research. Um, one is called kinetic impact. That is, you simply run into the asteroid with as big a spacecraft as you can get up to it, you know, a hunk of lead or whatever. But, I mean, it, it has to have, you know, controlled steering and that kind of thing to run into the asteroid at, a, at the right place and at the right speed. Uh, but you run into it and you slightly change its velocity, and that's what a deflection is all about. It's a precise change of velocity, which 10 years into the future causes an asteroid to arrive at the intersection with the Earth too early, so it goes through the intersection before the Earth gets there, or causing it to arrive too late so that the Earth is already through the intersection before the asteroid gets there. Now, after you've deflected something with a kinetic impact, which, as I say, is a brute force method uh, and not precise, then you need to fine-tune it using a gravity tractor, which is one of the other technologies. That's one which B612 Foundation developed, actually. But in any event, um, none of them have been tested, and what we need is to push the space agencies of the world to demonstrate that, in fact, by doing it, not, not in some simulation or whatever, but actually going up and changing the orbit of an asteroid, not one that's headed for the Earth, but just pick one that's, you know, out there minding its own business and, um, and, and changing its orbit slightly so that we prove to both ourselves and to the general public of the world that this can be done. All right. Now, there's been all this rumors about Apophis. Now, there's been rumors saying that it's supposed to hit in 2029 or that it'll be a near miss and will get hit in 2036. It's even been on the cover of National Geographic as a possible threat a couple of years ago. Now, is Apophis still a threat or have we determined that it's safe or what do we know about it? Well, Apophis is kind of the poster child of the asteroid impact issue um, in 20. In 2004, it was discovered, and at for a short period of time, in uh, late December of 2004, it appeared as though it was uh, going to hit the Earth in 2029. That is, the tracking that we got on it at the end of 2004 indicated that there was a fairly high probability, it got as high as 1 in 36, that in fact it was going to hit the Earth in 2029. Um, it turned out that we had actually tracked that asteroid uh, before, earlier in the year, in March. And when we realized that the, uh, that the, uh, the, the early observations that we got in March were, in fact, Apophis, then we combined that with the observations that we were getting in December. And it turned out that, no, it would not hit the Earth in 2029. It would make a fairly near miss, a close approach to the Earth, uh, but it would definitely not hit the Earth in 2029. That is, it has a zero probability of hitting the Earth in 2029. However, it will come quite close to the Earth. In fact, you'll be able to see it with your naked eye uh, going by the Earth. It goes by at about five Earth radii, uh, about the same distance, a little bit closer to the Earth, than some of our geostationary satellites. So it's, it's quite close. Um, and 
in coming close to the earth, there is a possibility. It's a very slim possibility, but there is a possibility about one chance in 233,000. That's very small. One in a quarter of a million that it will go through a very small region of space uh, near that distance where if it did, it would come back and hit the earth on April 13th, 2036. But that's an extremely small possibility. Now, what about the Russians' involvement in their so-called proclaimed protection of the Earth? They made a comment, oh, I'd say it was around wintertime, that they had a plan to indeed uh, step in and protect us all from Apophis at that point. How are the Russians involved? What dynamic are they adding to um, this network of companies, NASA, um, congressional boards, and foundations like yourself that are trying to either gain awareness or develop technology to protect the Earth from such a strike? It was the head of the Russian Space Agency, uh, uh, Mr. Permanov, who in December, I think it was December 18th or something like that, but in December of 2009, was doing an interview with a science reporter in Russia and he, in the middle of that interview, made a comment which surprised everyone, uh, even most of the Russians who are working on this issue that I'm aware of, when he said, n number one, uh, erroneously, that Apophis was, um, I don't remember whether he said it was going to hit the Earth or that there was a chance that it was going to hit the Earth in 2032, which is wrong. It's 2036. Um and that uh, he proposed that the Russians go up and in cooperation with the international uh, community, with other space agencies, um, that they deflect it. Now, that came, uh, we to, today, uh, up until this time, we have not really found out for sure where Mr. Permanov got that idea. But um, the Russians are very much uh, capable, as capable as the United States is, or China. There, there are six or seven nations who are capable of taking action on something like this. And the Russians are certainly capable of um, deflecting an asteroid. Uh, however, in our view, in my view, and in a lot of the people that I work with, uh, nobody should be touching an asteroid without full coordination with everyone else. This is an international issue, and it's a little bit like, um, you know, walking around in a crystal store. You know, you pick it up and drop it, you own it. And you touch an asteroid, um, and if ever in the future it hits the Earth, you're the one responsible. So, you know, we don't want to be messing around with things um, without it being fully coordinated and agreed upon by the international community. But we are working very closely with the Russians and with other space agencies in the United Nations to be prepared uh, to, in fact, mount such a coordinated effort to deflect an asteroid when a threat emerges. Rusty, what exactly is the work that the B612 Foundation is doing? Is it to develop technology? Is it to gain awareness, get funding from NASA, the United Nations? What is actually your, um, your mission 
on in the foundation? Yeah, let, let me explain a couple of things, and I'm going to go beyond B612 Foundation. Um, I, I'm actually, um, I've been over the past several years running two different organizations, B612 Foundation, and B612 is interested in and focused on the technology associated with deflecting an asteroid. However, there, you know, the technology is really, uh, is, it's a, it's a real issue, and we've done a lot of work on that, and in fact, we're not doing a lot of work on that at the moment because that work basically stands. It's, it's, it's largely completed. That is how to do it. Um, however, the issue which is far more challenging is the political decision which has to be made to do something when there is a threat. And the question is, who is it that makes that decision? What you realize when you look at it and you think seriously about it is that this is not a decision for any one nation or organization. This is a decision which the whole world has to make. It's the planet that is threatened, not any one nation. And at the time that you, generally speaking, have to take action to avert a threat, it's not at all clear where it is going to hit. And so you don't have a particular impact site in general at the time that you have to take action to make sure it doesn't hit somewhere on the earth. Therefore, it is an international decision that has to be coordinated. And so we're working as in, in our other organization, the Association of Space Explorers, and our Committee on Near-Earth Objects, which I headed for about five years, and now astronaut Tom Jones is heading that, that committee. And we have been working in the United Nations in the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, generally known or referred to as the Outer Space Committee of the United Nations. We have been working there for five years to bring the world, in particular the nations of the world, together in order to be able to decide in a timely way when a threat emerges that action has to be taken. And that's a much more difficult geopolitical decision, geopolitical action, than the technology of either knowing that there's a threat or taking action to avert it. So there are a whole series of things going on. It's not just B612, but there are lots of different things that are happening. Good evening, Rusty. First, thank you for uh, joining us tonight. I appreciate another fellow uh, New Jersey resident uh, coming on board. Um, you and uh, uh, also you and uh, uh, Dr. Tom Jones, who's also been on our show here, are also co-chairs of NASA's Advisory Council's uh, Ad Hoc Task Force on Planetary Defense. Can you tell us a little bit about what you, you and Dr. Jones will be doing with that, uh, with that particular council? Um, yes. The, our Task Force on Planetary Defense uh, was established by the or through the NASA Advisory Council, which basically advises the NASA Administrator on all sorts of things related to what NASA is and should be doing. And in particular, our task force was charged with essentially pulling together all of the work that's been done on the uh, threat of asteroid impacts with the Earth and to recommend to the administrator of NASA what 
he and NASA should be doing in preparation for protecting the Earth from asteroid impacts. Uh, that would include everything from research to demonstrations to simulations to development of technology to demonstrating a deflection capability and ultimately when a threat arises to actually um, uh, protecting the Earth by going up and deflecting an asteroid so that it does not, uh, uh, whenever it was, uh, it will not any longer uh, threaten impact with the Earth. And our task force is basically comprised of a number of experts in this field, and we are pulling together all of the things which we believe and that others have recommended that NASA do in, uh, in that regard. And we will be reporting that um, to NASA um, it, this fall. Okay, the House and, and Senate just finished up their markups on the uh, on NASA's future and their recommendations. Uh, are in your estimation, are we spending enough money now on uh, the neo th on the neo threat here, or should we go go ahead and uh, be allocating more funding to this? Um, well, that I, I, this is an excellent subject. I'm really glad you asked, and uh, you want to listen to this answer very carefully because. Uh, this is a subject where people really misunderstand this issue. This is extremely an extremely important issue. You're not talking about the fun and excitement of learning something about space. You're not talking about space science. You're not talking about sending astronauts out and, you know, walking in strange places or floating around in space or, you know, walking on Mars. What you're talking about here is public safety. You're talking about lives. You're talking about potentially, at the worst, in the worst case, extinction. So you're talking about an extremely important issue here. Um, at the same time, while not enough money is being spent today on it, without any question, when you spend enough money on it, as we should be, it's still very, very small compared with the overall NASA budget. You're not talking about making any more than a 1% dent in the NASA budget. I mean, so this is not big money. It's just big responsibility, and we're not doing it. But uh, we need to spend uh, something on the order of $200 million plus or minus a year on this issue for the next decade or so. Now, that's, as I say, that's less than 1% of the NASA budget, basically, but it's extremely important because you're talking about lives. The WISE telescope is discovering thousands of dark asteroids or other objects that are out there that could potentially be hazardous to the Earth. Is there a feeling in the community that is trying to log all of these objects and understand their trajectories and speeds that all of a sudden they can't catch up or there's too much data? Is and is there such a feeling that maybe we've missed something? If there is these dark objects out there, will we have a surprise upon us at some point that we don't have enough time to prepare ourselves for? Okay, well, there's a, you've got a lot of a lot of different things in that question. Um, so let me let me try to parse it a little bit. Uh, Wise, um, which is an infrared telescope, and it's been doing a survey of the entire sky. Uh, over the past year, and it's been doing a terrific job. 
Now, uh, as it was designed to do, and it's been extremely successful, but let me point out in the past year that it's been up there, while it's found uh, something on the order of 25,000 asteroids, uh, all but 90 of them have been in the main asteroid belt, which is very well behaved between Mars and Jupiter and doesn't pose any threat at all to the Earth. They, WISE has discovered only 90 near-Earth objects, near-Earth asteroids, that is, asteroids which cross the, the orbit of the Earth and can at some point um, uh, impact the Earth. Um, so WISE uh, has been very, very successful, um, but frankly, compared with what, addition, what new telescopes will be doing and what in particular some telescopes we will be recommending that NASA launch uh, will do, uh, WISE is less than a drop in the bucket. Uh, you know, when the telescopes which we should be using begin to work, they'll discover 90 asteroids, near-Earth asteroids, within a day or so, not within a year. So there are literally a million asteroids out there which we do not know about yet, which can do damage if they hit the Earth. Those are all near-Earth objects, and we have discovered less than one-half of one percent of them so far. So we have a lot of work to do, and WISE is, uh, unfortunately, while it's a great spacecraft and it's done wonderful work, it wasn't designed to find all of these many objects which we've got to find in order to adequately protect the Earth. Now, here's one thing I was wondering. It's supposed to be that at this point the Obama program is supposed to roll out their heavy lift vehicle by 2015, which according to your website for the uh, B612 Foundation says when you should be able to uh, significantly alter the orbit of an asteroid in a control manner, which do you think will come first, and which do you think is the most important? Well, you don't need a heavy lift uh, launch vehicle in order to launch an asteroid deflection mission uh, in general. I mean, you, you, you certainly um, can, and, and uh, in some sense, if you have it available, it might be, uh, say, for a kinetic impactor, you can launch a bigger one, um, something of that kind, but uh, in general, it's not necessary to have uh, launch vehicles bigger than what we have. We've launched uh, research vehicles out to Jupiter, out to Saturn, etc., using uh, launch vehicles that are readily available right now. So uh, meeting our B612 goal, which, frankly, while you know we, we put the, every, every, anybody who forms an organization wants to have a goal. But that doesn't mean it's a net, you know, that it means anything. It means something to us, you know, the B612 Foundation. But uh, it, it is entirely possible, in fact, that if NASA uh, really went at it, uh, we could demonstrate that we can deflect an asteroid still by 2015. That's still five years away, and that can be done with existing launch vehicles. So the two things, it's not an either or. Um, you know, we can. We can have a, a heavy launch vehicle, uh, hopefully, by uh, 2015. I doubt that that'll happen, but hopefully we can do that. Um, and we can also deflect an, uh, you know, an asteroid as a demonstration by 2015. 
Uh, Rusty, current uh, NASA plans are calling for a possible human human visitation to an asteroid, or if, or if somebody has, or some folks have, have coined the phrase "landing on an asteroid." Number one, how do you go about landing on an asteroid? And number two, is it worth the gamble to go ahead and send humans out to uh, to uh, embark on such a mission? Well, it's a very good question, and uh, the answer is no. You don't land on an asteroid. Uh, you, you dock with an asteroid. Uh, the gravity of an asteroid is so weak. It's real, but it's very weak. And, uh, you, you know, landing uh, implies that you're, that you're touching down on something that's got a lot of gravity, and you have to carefully land. Well, you, you have to uh, – I mean uh, – uh, visiting an asteroid is a lot like visiting the International Space Station. You take one vehicle up there and you approach the International Space Station and you dock with it. You have to thrust to put yourself in the right position and then you carefully dock with it. But you don't land on the International Space Station and we won't land on an asteroid. Um, now, at the same time, is it worthwhile for a human mission? Absolutely. Um, as far as I'm concerned, and I've testified before Congress, uh, both the Senate and the House, that, in fact, um, sending a human, uh, human mission uh, to an asteroid um, is a lot more logical in terms of a stepping stone to get to a human mission to Mars than it is to go back to the moon. Uh, when you go to an asteroid, you're going into solar orbit. You're going into deep space. Uh, you go to the moon, you're in Earth space. Uh, you know, we need to get into deep space to go to Mars. And therefore, going to an asteroid is both more interesting. We're going to learn a lot more. And you, can, you also have a more logical stepping stone to getting to a landing on Mars. Should that be NASA's focus at this point, uh, then? Should we just go ahead and, uh, you know, forget about uh, going back to the moon and uh, just focusing on the red planet? Well, uh, number one, there's no question uh, that, that we'll go back to the moon. But you have to be a little bit careful on what you're talking about when you say go back to the moon. There's, there's probably a, a good logic which says before you go out to an asteroid with a manned mission, you test the vehicle that you're going to do that with by going out around the moon. You may orbit the moon. You may um, take pictures of it or whatever. That's different from landing on the moon, and it's a lot different from landing and setting up a base of operations on the moon, which is what the earlier Constellation program, at least when it was first proposed by President Bush, um, uh, entailed. Now, as anyone who has been watching the program over the last eight years knows, uh, the money that was required to accomplish that was never really allocated. And the result of that is that the whole program became an impossibility. And hence, the Obama program has now uh, essentially revised those goals and is now looking at a different way in which, ultimately, we will get to Mars. And... Uh, essential to that is a human visit to an asteroid or landing on or visitation to an, to an asteroid. But in doing that, we'll probably go back out uh, to the moon as well, but not land on it and set up a base. 
You had mentioned the uh, uh, the Obama budget and uh, what what's currently going on. What is your, your opinion of uh, what the Senate and the House are doing to the NASA budget currently and just sort of revamping the objectives? Um, I'm not sure I want to tell you what I think. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me just say it's a little bit like uh, the old saw about, uh, you know, sausage is wonderful stuff, but you don't want to watch it being made. <laughs> understand. Uh, you know, it's it, in, in my view, it's a little bit embarrassing the way in which the Congress has um, handled the proposed uh, space program under, you know, proposed by uh, President Obama. Now, at the same time, I, I also was somewhat disappointed when the program was first announced, only in the sense that there was no specific human mission goal that was announced. The general principle, I agreed with wholeheartedly, but there was no specific goal. Uh, on April the 1st, when President Obama went down to the Kennedy Space Center and gave uh, a speech on the, and met with all the people down there and gave a more detailed uh, presentation of his program, at that point, uh, it had evolved to include a human mission to an asteroid by 2025. And that then creates a focus which you can then work toward, a very specific goal. And uh, so even though that's one goal in a series of ultimately getting to, you know, human presence on Mars, nevertheless, it is a very specific target that you can begin working toward. And so at that point, I became fully supportive of the Obama proposal. Um, now, unfortunately, um, uh, there is a lot of controversy because canceling the Constellation program, uh, extending the space station, which basically everybody wants to do, um, there were, and, and relying on, in the future, commercial uh, private enterprise to transport people and cargo into Earth orbit uh, to the space station and any other Earth orbital destination uh, were very big changes. And uh, the Congress was uh, not well consulted or was not uh, coordinated with very well in the overall development of that uh, program. And therefore, it, it received a lot of um, rebuttal and uh, differences of opinion and controversy. And the result of that is that we have sausage in the making now. <laughs> yeah, the, it just seemed to me, too, that the entire rollout of the whole thing was also, from a public standpoint, not very well done. Uh, I, I think the public kind of sort of, me included, by the way, I'm lumping myself into that, sort of misunderstood of the event, uh, you know, initially. But, yeah, uh, it was it was it was posited by some as cancellation of the human exploration program. Well, it was never that. Uh, but that really uh, somebody said that and it got caught up in the press. And so, you know, it was a kind of uh, popular uh, quasi informed opinion that Obama was proposing canceling uh, human exploration. That was never the case. Uh, but the absence, again, of having a specific goal. Uh, allowed that uh, misperception to get out there ahead of, uh, you know, the real story, unfortunately. 
Yeah, agreed. Agreed. I thought again, um, we we all thought here that the uh, the rollout was was really really botched, and and really the the upshot of it should have been you know saying the the International Space Station will continue for another 10 years. We'll have that as a, as a great asset and also as a stepping stone for Mars as well. So, Right. And I think it's going to make a big difference um, in terms of essentially uh, moving toward having uh, access to low Earth orbit provided by commercial means and not by the taxpayers' um, you know, owning and operating a taxi service—that's uh, that's uh, frankly, in the long run, silly. Now, whether whether you can rely on that uh, from where we are right now, or whether you want to hedge against um, uh, extended delays in that capability evolving, is part of the current controversy. Uh, I, I frankly, um, you know, my own opinion, which is already in congressional testimony, so it's not as if I'm talking out of school, my own opinion is that if you end up with a government program uh, hedging uh, against the private industry, you end up with the government competing with private industry. You're taking the incentive or part of the incentive structure away, which is where capital investment uh, comes from. So, you know, I, I, I frankly believe that we should commit to commercial transportation as a means of getting into low Earth orbit and not have a government-sponsored program competing with it. But, you know, I'm not elected to Congress, and I don't want to be. <laughs> <laughs> Wise man. <laughs> I read about the Torino scale for assessing asteroid and and comic impact uh, predictions, kind of like a Richter scale. You think yeah. uh, you think we could use a uh, a Torino scale of say eight to get people's attention, and it would be a disaster, I'm sure, but maybe just a small one to get people's attention. Sometimes folks don't uh, really don't really uh, listen unless they realize how serious things can be. Well, I, I basically uh, both understand and like uh, your thought. I mean, we, uh, in, in some sense, perhaps luckily, we don't have any control over that. But um, I think there's no question at all that if a uh, relatively small asteroid, something, you know, on the order of 30 or 40 meters was to uh, impact in the, in the oceans somewhere, uh, I think there's absolutely no question that it would get a lot of attention and people would finally begin to realize, uh, you know, we number one, we can predict these things, and number two, uh, we can prevent them, and we got to, you know, do our the work that we ought to be doing in the space program so that we can protect life in the future. Um, so uh, there's no question that uh, an incident of that kind would help, um, but, you know, I don't have the pull to bring it off. Maybe you do. No, I'm curious how we are uh, on a global scale of, of tracking what we're actually doing versus what we have the technology to do today. Where do you think we're at for, for that kind of capability versus what's in practice? 
Well, that, that's an interesting question, Mark. We, in some sense, the easy answer to your question is that we're almost as far as we can go with the technology that we're using today. Uh, that is, the telescopes that are out there, uh, the, the Catalina Sky Survey and the Linear Program and others, the Lonios and others that have, have operated for the last 10 years, are basically reaching their limit. Uh, if you look at the curve of discovery of objects larger than one, you know, one kilometer or larger, you go to the JPL NEO website and look at it, you see that it's leveling off. It's leveling off because with telescopes of the size that we're using today, you really can't find any more. That's not quite true. I mean, we're discovering them all the time, but it's a very slow rate. What we need is new technology. We need bigger telescopes. I mean, the question came up about WISE earlier. Well, WISE is an interesting step principally because it's a space telescope and it's in the infrared. And that's helpful because we can see uh, objects and you can make better measurements to some extent if you're using the infrared. So, I mean, it's a, it's a useful telescope, but it is not the instrument we need to discover the uh, near-Earth objects or the asteroids, which in the long run will threaten an impact. What we need are larger telescopes or space telescopes that are specifically designed uh, in order to discover um, uh, the large, uh, the bulk of those objects up there, which we have not yet found, but which uh, can be dangerous. Now, let me give you an example. You can put a relatively small telescope, or even two of them, in a Venus-like orbit, that is, maybe orbiting the sun between 0.6 and 0.8 astronomical units, you know, a little bit inside of the Venus orbit to a little bit outside the Venus orbit. And you can put telescopes there looking outward toward the Earth, away from the sun, and we can very, very rapidly uh, discover uh, most of the objects that are 140 meters in diameter, which the Congress has told NASA it should do. You can do that in a matter of three years if you've got two of those telescopes. So uh, it's new technology, it's new telescopes that we need to deploy in order to do the search job that we ought to be doing. That, frankly, is part of what our task force on planetary defense is grappling with, and we will be making recommendations in that regard. Rusty, we have a bunch of, uh, also a bunch of uh, folks who are amateur astronomers that uh, listen to our show. Is there anything that uh, the amateur community could be doing to assist in the NEO search? Well, that's a very good question, and I'm really glad you asked it, because, uh, you know, within the last year or so, we've discovered that, in fact, um, there is a very important job that amateurs can be doing in the future, they might have to get organized a little bit, um, you know, to do it. I'll, I'll, I'll describe it. Um, first of all, let me say that when it comes to the work, well, first of all, let, let, let me just say that in the, over the past 10 years, the amateur astronomy community, for those who are not aware of it, have been doing a great job in confirming a lot of the discoveries that the formal uh, search program, the government-sponsored search programs, have been discovering. And follow-up and, 
and precise tracking of those objects which are uh, discovered by the formal program is an extremely valuable contribution that the amateur community has been making. The bad news is that in the future, as the formal search program shifts to smaller and smaller objects, the amateur community is going to be able to contribute less and less to the follow-up because these objects are so much smaller that you need very large telescopes to see them and to do the follow-up. And so, uh, in, in a sense, the amateur community will no longer be able to do what it has been doing in the search for the largest objects. However, what we have found in the last year or so is that there is a whole class, it's not a class of objects, but let me just say uh, it's quite easy to see that there are objects which hit the Earth, you know, right now, all the time, before we discover them. That is, you, there, you know, there are many small objects, small objects hit the Earth far more frequently than large objects. And um, there are objects, uh, you know, several meters in size, up to tens of meters in size, which hit the Earth and which we may not ever see and track or have in our catalog, um, you know, 10 or 15 years before they hit. But we have discovered that we can, by looking at the favored, um, in the favored directions for impacts, we can discover objects just before they impact, within a matter of weeks to a couple of months before impact using relatively small telescopes. And so what might be called late warning or an early warning of, a, of an impact that's about to occur when it's, if you will, on final approach, that is, it's going to be hitting within a matter of several months, that can be done by amateurs using telescopes that are quite modest, in fact, off-the-shelf telescopes. And there is a project, I don't know if you Google it, if you can find anything on it, but uh, John Tonry and, and uh, Rob Jedicke from the University of Hawaii have proposed a project called ATLAS, which uh, really takes off-the-shelf equipment and organizes it in such a way with very high-powered software where relatively small groups of people uh, let's say an astronomical society or a university astronomy department or something like that, or something on the order of a million dollar investment can literally be part of a global um, late warning uh, system. And that can save a lot, a lot of lives because, uh, you know, if you can see something a couple of weeks before it impacts, uh, you can pretty precisely, at that late date, you can precisely tell where it's going to impact and you can evacuate people. So that's an interesting new role that the amateur community um, uh, could get pretty excited about. And it's the kind of thing that could literally go on all around the world. Uh, so I, I think that's an interesting, to keep, interesting one to keep an eye on. Do we have any other questions about asteroids or B612 Foundation? No, but I do have one last final question for the night. Ah, uh, here it comes. Yep, always <laughs> the hardest one for last. Is there anything that you wish to plug? 
Anything that you want to get out there? Any programs, any books, anything along those lines that you want our listeners to take a look at? Well, I think uh, it's it's very important that uh, that your listeners urge their Congress people. I mean, you know, when you're talking about the general public here, what you're you know the standard answer is write your Congress, your representative, your congressman, or your senator. And, uh, you know, it sounds silly, but that's a very real thing. Uh, It's a a very important thing, especially right now in the NASA program and the way things are going. As we've talked about earlier, um, you know, the Congress and and the uh, the, the Senate and the House are just now working through their final um, uh, deliberations on the uh, proposed space program. And it's very important uh, that, in fact, this component, that is planetary defense, be added to the NASA responsibility, in fact, the government responsibility. Uh, there are things which you know, NASA will not be responsible for. For example, evacuation, civil defense, uh, you know, Department of Homeland Security would be responsible. But the bulk of things that have to be done uh, in, in the line of planetary defense uh, will be done by NASA. And it's very important that that component be known and understood by representatives, uh, elected officials, uh, and that they act on that. Again, I want to repeat, we're not talking about a lot of money. We're talking about a very little amount of money, but a very important responsibility. And so you're not talking budget. This is not a conflict with the mainline program, but it is an important responsibility that so far no nation in the world has really stood up to. Right now, we're moving very close to that with the new Obama, NASA, and with the task force that Tom Jones and I are are leading right now. So this is a very, very critical moment in time in terms of the U.S. space program picking up this responsibility and acting on it. And I would urge people to support that, um, you know, with their elected officials. Actually, Rusty, is there a specific um, committee or subcommittee in Congress, too, that people should contact in addition to their individual representatives? Well, this, the, uh, you know, the House and Senate space committees are, are the, the ones. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to give you the official designation of them. You know, people can look it up, but it's a, it's the space. I think it's space and transportation, um, in in one of the bodies, and the science and something in, in the other. But anyway, it's the it's the committees in the House and the Senate uh, that handle the NASA budget, which are the ones that you want to get to, and in particular the subcommittees, but the full committees as well. I just want to thank my panel this evening for such excellent questions to our guest, Rusty Schweikert, this evening. So thanks, Sawyer. You're welcome, Gina. Thank you, Gene. Always a high honor and a privilege to talk to a gentleman like that. And Mark, thank you for your incredible questions. Ditto. I love, uh, again, I keep saying this, but I learned so much, and it's a great opportunity to talk to some, some great folks in the uh, business. Okay, Sawyer, it's all you. Say it. You got it. Have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.